Well, last week we saw that Jesus said that he had come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. He said that one's standing in the kingdom of heaven is tied to whether one keeps and teaches even the least of the commandments. And then he ended by provocatively saying to us, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And we mentioned last week that unpacking what he meant fully would require looking at the next six chunks of teaching that he gives. These six chunks of teaching are often called the antitheses because six times in this chapter now, you have this pattern where Jesus says, you have heard it said, or you have heard it said of old. And then he says, with divine authority, But I say to you, no citing of the scribes or the rabbis, no reference to the scholarly consensus, just serene, sovereign majesty as the Lord and the goal of the Torah. You have heard it said for centuries, but I say to you. So thus, there's this contrast, right? This antithesis between what was heard, or at least between perhaps a current interpretation of what was heard, and Jesus' own words. He who comes, right, he tells us to fulfill, to bring the law to completion, and thus expects us to keep the law as he himself hands it to us. So we'll make two points here. They're on the the outline in your bulletin, anger and reconciliation, anger and reconciliation. So first, anger. This is the first of six antitheses. The first antithesis begins in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. He cites the, the sixth commandment. The law forbids criminal or unjust killing. The Sixth Commandment is not addressing questions like the death penalty or just wars or self-defense. The Sixth Commandment is about unjust, unauthorized taking of a human life. Which is why, by the way, thou shalt not kill is a mistranslation. It's properly thou shalt not murder. But Our Lord's citation of what was heard is not complete. He continues and he says, you know, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So when he when he evokes this word judgment, he's referring to the sanctions in the law for murder, namely the death penalty. So in this instance, he's not really correcting a misinterpretation of the law. Right. He's not correcting a perversion of the law. He's referring to the judicial statutes, what we might call the penal code of the law itself. Right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 9, we're told, rooted in the fact that human beings bear the image of God. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. Murder, then, right, is an assault on God's image. And it's taken with the utmost seriousness, right? We heard it in the Old Testament lesson from Numbers 35 over and over and over. If you strike someone, 
with a fatal blow. That person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. If you use a stone, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. If you use a wooden object and you strike someone with a fatal blow, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. Now, there were exceptions, right? There's Cain, there's Moses, there's David. All committed murder. Escape justice. But the Lord's point here is, this is a capital offense. And the judgment he refers to here is dreadful. And it is final for murderers. Now, we might, as the first hearers of Jesus surely would have, we might be thinking at this point, that's all well and good. Right? But what does murder have to do with me? Right? Or with my friends? This is a sin for the really bad folks, not for good people like ourselves. Of course, Jesus thinks it is very much about us. And what he's doing, beginning in verse 23 with his but I tell you, is he is pointing us to the searching depths, right? The interior dimensions, the fullness of the law. But I tell you, Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, all of a sudden, the stakes are higher. It's not about those, mur- those few murderers that are wandering around. Anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to the judgment. Now, he's not even adding to or reinterpreting the law here either. Leviticus 19 says this, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the prohibition right, against anger and against hatred and against revenge is found in the Old Testament. It's rooted there. And what Jesus is doing is he's going down to the root and he's surfacing this right, in a radical way that the source of murder is found in anger. Right? The source of murder is down there. Now, if we ask, well, what, is, what particular types, what does this anger look like? What does Jesus mean by anger? The answer would be, well, we know it by how it's shown, by how we exhibit it. It's the type of anger which says rashly or harshly to a brother or a sister, raka. Which means something like empty-headed, stupid. Idiotic. Or Jesus says it calls someone a fool. And the Greek word he uses there is the word that we get the word moron from. And it has overtones of perhaps the person is apostate, reprobate, damned. It's an accusatory kind of speech. Now, These are not curse words, right? They're not even, in some contexts, inappropriate, right? We have to take some care here. Jesus demonstrates anger in the gospel. He calls the Pharisees fools. He calls his own disciples fools. Right? The prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, they speak of, and they condemn fools. So when Jesus speaks of anger here, and the words which flow from it, He means unjust anger, disproportionate anger, 
misshapen anger. Some translations add the words without cause after whoever is angry with a brother or sister. So it would read, whoever is angry with a brother or sister without cause. The words are probably not original, but they, get, they convey the sense. So what's in view here is not righteous indignation, such as Jesus or the prophets may have expressed. But something much more common, right? A kind of overreacting, misshaped anger, a, a malicious, self-avenging, retaliatory, petty anger expressed verbally. Right? The unrighteous anger of man, which James tells us cannot achieve the righteousness of God. And beloved, let me tell you, 99.99% of our anger is unrighteous anger. Even where we have just cause, usually our anger, which may start righteously, ends up burning into a fire and making the situation worse. And, and this is why Holy Scripture is ferociously concerned with our anger and its consequences. Listen to just a small sampling. This is God's word. Psalm 37, verse 8. Refrain from anger. In other words, don't even worry about righteous anger. The goal should be to get virtually zero anger in your life. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but the one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Proverbs 22, 24, do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered. Well, that'll shrink your pool of friends really fast. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Proverbs 29, verse 11, fools give full vent to their rage. Right? Where you see a raging, angry person, you're, you're looking at, in most cases, a fool. But the wise bring calm. The proverb says. Ecclesiastes 7. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. Right? We should have really, really, really long fuses. Do not be quickly provoked. For anger resides in the lap of fools. Right? Colossians 3.8. Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. All anger, all malice, all slander, all filthy language from your lips. Ephesians 4, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anger is the gateway to the demonic, Paul is saying. Right? And this sort of anger, Jesus is saying, is just a form of hatred, and it is the stuff of murder. Right? This is why John can say in his first epistle, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer... You know that no murderer has eternal life in him. It is the essence of murder to bear this sort of anger toward another brother or sister in the church, Jesus is saying. 
It is the essence of murder. Now, surely the principle applies more broadly. He'll actually apply it more broadly in this text. And later in the Sermon on the Mount, he will apply it to enemies. Now, this is shocking, right? But we must hear it, right? The stuff of murder is in us. The stuff of murder is in us. At the first slight, right, or the first provocation, or the first wrong, or the first criticism, we tend to bristle or to react. It's instinctive. Instinctively, the heat or the instinct of murder rises up in us. Usually at this point, we're narrating it to ourselves as us being the rectifiers of all that is bad in the world. But it seems automatic. It's like some natural defense mechanism. It's almost biochemical. Out of the heart, Jesus says, out of the deep recesses of the interior person, comes anger and speech which defile. Right? They make unclean a person. And so we end up, everyone knows this, right? We have to fight to not respond in kind. Right? It's a sign of how deep and how entrenched and how entangled in our psychosomatic existence the stuff of murder is. And from this anger, Jesus tells his disciples, flows speech. Right? And this speech here is not simply an uncalled for insult. It is that. It is an uncalled for insult. But this speech is also a hateful condemnation of one's brother or sister. Right? This is speech which treats the other as subhuman and forgets their status as image bearers of the triune God. Speech which implies, yeah, well, maybe they're apostate, maybe they're immoral, maybe they're cut off. Right? Speech which forgets the mercy that we have received. Right? Anger takes the spirit or the ethos of the Beatitudes that is supposed to inhabit us and just drives it into the wilderness of your life. Drives it away. Angry people are rich in spirit. They are not poor in spirit. So, this is speech which comes from a heart which, in truth, wishes the other person was dead. That, in fact, is, Scripture tells us, what is often in our hearts when we seethe with hatred and anger at a brother or a sister. It's just, everyday murder. Now, I want to interject something important here. The actual words that Jesus uses here, raka and fool, These are common words. These are not some like, you know, Herculean super curse words that you bring out for the really bad guys like Hitler. These are are words that common people use all the time. And this is part of what makes Jesus' teaching so shocking and so radical. No one is immune to this condemnation. This is just how people talk. And and we too, right, we live in a culture. We live in an atmosphere of fuming, of grievance, of fear, of mockery, where it's hip to be biting and snarky, where gentleness and charity and purity and humility and kindness are not the virtues we prize in our speech. We live in an environment where it's just normal now for us to be angry, to go around saying, he's a jerk, she's a moron, they are idiots. We're doing this hundreds and hundreds of times a week. You know what it is? It's everyday killing. 
It's murder. We now resort to this stuff like we're breathing. Like, like, like breathing. Remember that kid saying, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. Not only do your words hurt other people terribly, Jesus says here that our unrighteous words hurt us most of all. Right? Far worse than sticks and stones. Because notice what he says. This speech directed at a sister or a brother. You know, you're just calling him a jerk, that's all. This speech directed as a sister or brother subjects us, Jesus says, to the judgment fires of hell itself. Right? And no one talked about hell more than this Jesus. I mean, I get Jesus talking about hell for the really big stuff. I'm just happy to call, call another brother I disagree with an idiot. And, you know, Jesus brings up Gehenna here. It's the Valley of Hinnom. It's a smoldering garbage dump south of Jerusalem. At which centuries earlier, ancient Molech worship, child sacrifice was practiced. He uses that smoldering fire as a metaphor for the fire of divine judgment. So that anger and its associated insults, they may escape a human court, but they will not escape the judge of all the earth. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, you think the death penalty for murder in the Torah is harsh? It's just a shadow. It's just a type. It points to the fire of the judgment that I will exact in the fire of hell itself. Now, this anger in speech is not identical to murder. Jesus doesn't say that. But it is the root of murder. It is the stuff of violence. And it justly places us, our Lord says, in grave danger, in the danger of hell itself. You don't have to be a murderer to go to hell. You just have to call people names. Because God is going to vindicate his image that we bear. He's going to protect that image. And he's going to judge those who verbally assault that image. Now, who among us now wants to stand up and say, this text does not apply to us? And Jesus wants us to see this problem clearly. And he wants us to deal with this anger radically at the root, to rip it out. Because we are those whose righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And thus we come to the second point, which is reconciliation. And here he gives us two examples He gives us one from civic life, dealing with fellow Christians. And then he gives us one dealing with an adversary. So he extends the principle beyond the church. And they're they're to show us how to break the cycle that leads from anger to speech or to action. So verse 23. Here's the therefore. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Now, notice something here. It's true in both examples Jesus gives. He shifts from talking about our anger to the anger that our actions produce in other people. Notice that, right? We, We always remember and we churn over other people's hostility and offenses toward us. Jesus says, remember what your unjust behavior has done. Remember the offenses you have caused, right? 
Right? There are people who are oblivious to the effect that their temperament or their words or their demeanor have on others. Right? We don't want to be among them. We don't want to be going through life oblivious to the fact that we're, in fact, offending people. So you're at the altar, Jesus says. That is, you're in the temple, and you're offering your gift or your sacrifice. You're in church, and the liturgy's already started. And you remember that someone has something against you. By the way, not that you have something against them. You might be good with them. It's that they have something against you. That really puts the burden on you. Right? And the situation is envisioned here is they have some kind of a claim. Something you did provoked their anger or their offense. And Jesus calls for you to take immediate action. He says, leave your gift at the altar. In some ways, the example is absurd because he wants to show us how radically, how early, how thoroughly you should deal with the problem. Right? Because if you're in Jerusalem offering a sacrifice, you're probably there for the feast. Passover or one of the other annual feasts. Which means you could have come from hundreds of miles away. You're at the temple and you're offering your sacrifice and you remember that, you know, your brother or your wife, you know, back in Turkey has something against you. Well, leave your gift, go back to Turkey, get reconciled, and then come back and offer your gift. It's an intentionally exaggerated scenario to tell you you should deal seriously with this stuff and you should deal early with it. For us, it means don't wait for the service to be over. Oh, well, they're doing the reading of the scripture now. I can't interrupt that. Yeah, you can for this. You can for this. Stop worshiping. You know why? Because if you're worshiping in this situation, it's a mockery. It's sacrilege. First things first. You did the wrong. You initiate the reconciliation. First, Jesus says, go, be reconciled to them. Now, they may not want reconciliation, but you don't know until you go. You may say, well, I've already tried to be reconciled to them. Well, go again. Jesus, I don't remember Jesus saying... Look, if you've tried, don't worry about it. Keep offering your sacrifice. As far as it depends on us, we are to be at peace with all, he says. So this, yes, this is humbling work, and it's difficult, and our whole fallen selves rebel against it. But this is what peacemaking entails. Well, we can have the alternative, which is largely what the American church has, some sort of ability to maneuver around people you don't particularly like. This is the way of the cross. And notice it's a command. In fact, it's three commands. Go, be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. Don't put the third command in front of the other two. Cut off not only your own anger, but make sure that you cut off anybody else's simmering anger. Make their peace, their well-being your primary concern, especially if you're going to come to this place and worship. And the second example he gives is starts in verse 25, where he says, Settle matters quickly, even with an adversary taking you to court. I don't think we should press these details. This is a sort of mini parable. And Jesus is really making one simple point. And the simple point is, move swiftly now, sooner, not later, to seek reconciliation. It won't do for us to say, well, I'm going to see the person on Tuesday. So I'll, I'll just worship here, and I'll deal with the reconciliation on Tuesday. Right? 
The whole ethos of this text is, no, stop everything you're doing. Do it while you're still on the way, he says. You might end up being thrown into prison. Here he means a debtor's prison, which in the ancient world you could remain in for a really long time until you paid your debt off. Again, notice this. With this example, he's kind of also teaching that the anger that we've caused can have very large ramifications. Right? The tongue is like a fire. It sets a whole forest fire. Uh, you know, it's like a spark. It causes large fires. It's like a lawsuit that's not settled beforehand. You don't know what's going to happen. The damage done by our anger is kind of like having an unpaid debt. He's saying, pay the debt, otherwise you're going to be exposed to the wrath of the judge. And that brings us back to the original point. Right? This, this sort of anger is the stuff of murder. And yes, it's true, no human court can legislate against anger. But where this hatred exists and where it verbally assaults a brother or a sister, just by using a common word, it places us in the danger of the fiery judgment of God. So so God takes what's in our hearts, right, with utmost seriousness. Because there are no sins, there, there are no crimes, no matter how grievous, that don't start there. Right? Out of the heart flows, what does Jesus say? Murder. Not just out of some hearts, potentially out of any human heart. We're all made of the same stuff. And the things which come out of the mouth also proceed from the heart. And thus God takes your speech with utmost seriousness. So this is a summons, right? It's a summons to us that by the gospel, right, by the spirit, by the free grace of God, we are called then to purify our hearts of unjust anger. Or, also, I I think, supplemental to this, is we should make sure that we are not unjust in our righteous anger. They're both equally temptations for us. We are not to nurse or to coddle grudges or bitterness. And you won't have to rip it out once. You might have to rip it out of your heart a hundred times in the same day. We are to go to war with them radically and continually, early in their embryonic form. Let us not let the sun go down on our anger, for it gives Satan, who's a murderer, notice that, from the beginning, a foothold. We must not be everyday murderers. We must not be content to keep the commandments of God only outwardly, but in their full, beautiful, cutting depth, as revealed by Jesus, who is the fulfiller of the law. You will give an account, Jesus says, for every careless word. By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know why? Because the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of full reconciliation of glorious harmony, undefiled by anger or malice or slander. It's a kingdom of shalom in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us respond to the word of God.
confessing our faith in the God of peace who has reconciled us, who has pardoned our anger in Jesus Christ. Let us rise and confess the Apostles' Creed.